This is Stories of Win, where we showcase amazing women in neuroscience. We chat with them about their research, their unique journeys through academia, and what drives their passion for studying the brain. Here is one of their stories. Hello everyone, this is Margarida from Stories of Win, and I have the pleasure today of interviewing Dr. Vanessa Stempel. Dr. Vanessa is a principal investigator at the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research in Germany, and the Stempel Lab studies the neural circuits underlying instinctive behaviors in rodents. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for being here today. It's a really great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here too. Um, thank you. And so I'll start as we usually do, which is how did you get interested in neuroscience? Or if you want to also tell us a bit more, how did you get interested in science as a whole? You can also do that. Um, yeah, so I think I had a relatively straightforward and at the same time warped introduction to science. Um, my father did a PhD in ornithology and my mom studied biology and I have a family where everyone was obsessed with birds. I don't even know why and I, I always found it very uninteresting. But I think so I grew up in an environment where science was kind of very much there but in an implicit, not an explicit way. And my, my dad left science after a PhD. Um, but so I think like in general, in our household, scientific thinking was always very much how everything was approached. Um, when in school, I was very interested in biology and the brain, but more from a philosophical level. Um, and I, I had biology as a, in German, it's called like a, one of your majors. Um, and I, I thought about studying biology and then I had this classic, um, I don't know, um, thing at home where having parents who had studied it and it's like no don't do it you're going to be unemployed this is a terrible idea especially zoology is a particularly terrible idea so I kind of never really thought that I would do it and I was interested in enough other things like I wanted to be a journalist I wanted to be a photographer a goldsmith uh, a costume designer to theater so I had lots of other things I was interested in so I kind of put it at the back of my mind and after school I started doing a ton of other things including applying to be a fashion designer and a goldsmith and then in the end, um, I ended up studying to be a journalist and started writing for a small, new, small newspaper. But then during these studies, I, I just got really, I don't know, upset with, with the courses and thought, like, if I'm a journalist, but I don't actually know anything in detail, this is stupid as well. Um, especially if I want to be a science journalist or a political journalist, I need to actually study something in depth and then do the writing. Anyway, so I quit. And then went back home thinking, okay, cool, now I'm just going to do something random for half a year, maybe go traveling. And then my parents was like, why, you're not studying, so you're not going to get any cash. Then I worked in subways um, for half a year full time, which made me be like, okay, whatever I do next, <laughs> I should really not quit again. And then I decided, and then I ended up with biology since I had kind of explored all other options and I wasn't really happy with them. And then to kind of find a balance between doing biology, but not doing it the useless way, which then, according to everyone I was speaking to, was zoology or neuroscience, right? Both topics where you just don't land a job afterwards. So I studied applied biology with a focus on microbiology and molecular biology, which is probably the worst thing I could have done. I hated it. I found it incredibly boring. All the lab work was, I just found it so tedious. And I, yeah, I was just like, okay, this is clearly not for me. And then um, for my, um, for my master's, because I couldn't really decide whether I wanted to um, specialize on either infectious diseases and work on malaria. That was kind of one thing I was interested in or go into neuroscience. 
um, which at that point had become clear that I want to do either of those two things. Uh, but still not thinking about a career in science at all, just just talking about studying and then figuring out what to do later. Um, I, I, I went to study biomedicine at UCL because I still couldn't decide. So this was still like some kind of in between and then maybe deciding later. So I'm, ter I'm really terrible at making decisions. So this was a way of kind of postponing this decision. And then I had actually signed up for um, doing a master's thesis at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and Malaria. And while also looking into neuroscience, but then having decided on the other, on the day before I started my thesis, I just woke up thinking, oh, this is a terrible mistake. I need to do neuroscience. And then I canceled the malaria uh, masters. And then I think like this was really, whenever you ask people and they talk about crossroads in their lives, the, I think that was one of these crossroads because then I joined the lab um, at, the, at UCL in the NPP, Neuroscience, um, Pharmacology and Physiology Department, where I started working with Mark Farrand and Stuart Kalkendi on um, single ion channels and um, AMPA and GABA-A receptors and being introduced into um, the world of electrophysiology and patch clamp. And this really changed my life because I loved it so much. Of all the biology I'd done before and all the cloning and molecular biology that I hated, this was the opposite. You could see neurons chattering away live. You could watch single channels do their thing live. And it just absolutely blew my mind. It made me so happy. Um, yeah, and then I stayed in science, and uh, that's it. And I've always done electrophysiology ever since. I don't want to do anything else. <laughs> I mean, I've expanded a bit to be able to answer questions more holistically, and we're now also doing a lot of behavior, as you know, and we're working on instinctive behaviors. But so after this master's experience, and also Mark Farrand was a wonderful supervisor in the, in the sense that I was just a random master's student. And he spent so much time with me. The lab was amazing. They made me for the first time. So they offered me a PhD position initially. And so it was the first time that I thought, oh, maybe I can actually do this. And maybe I can do this as a career, um, which I had never thought about before because, I don't know, I think it was like a classic Western German girl. I just never assumed that I could be a scientist. Um, yeah, and then I went on to do a PhD. I, I chose a different lab because I wanted to do a bit more well I got so from going coming from the single channels they were like maybe I want to do a bit more that's a bit more physiological and I got really interested in plasticity um, and then I went to a lab to study synaptic transmission and plasticity um, but yeah so I think this is really where it began and I realized I want to be a neuroscientist is when I did my master's in this um, in this lab so thanks Mark <laughs> Absolutely fascinating, <laughs> absolutely fascinating uh, career. And it's really interesting. I think there is a really big tendency for scientists to also want to pursue more creative paths. And uh, I think it's a good thing that you've explored them and they also gave you perspective. But so in the end, you went for neuroscience because you wanted to understand the brain or because you were fascinated about the techniques and what they allowed you to see life? No. Yeah, no, no, no. It was just a technique that that way I thought, okay, I can actually practically do this without being too bored to exist. Um, the science, I mean, I was always interested in, for example, evolution um, and ethology just 
in my private life, like, let's say like growing up from the age of 12, 13. And we always had, again, coming from the family I came from, we had we had astrology books by, by I don't know, Tinberg and, and, and Carl Lawrence at home or evolutionary books that my parents gave me to read. So I think this was kind of intrinsic to be interested in it, but I never had this moment was like, oh, I need to understand the brain. I think it was more a generalized interest in science. And at some point when you're interested in how stuff works, you kind of end up in the brain, often at least. So I think this was also semi-accidental. I think I would have been equally happy to study microbes. Um, it's just given that you have to do a lot of experimental work as a PhD student, as a postdoc, I think that's where the experimental part really made a difference because I, I'm just not a molecular biologist. And I was also not very good at it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> and so then for your PhD, you went back to Germany, right? Yeah. And so do you want to tell us a bit more? So which lab did you choose? What did you study? And uh, if you have like a cool result that you want to share from the time where you were a PhD? Um, yeah, so I, I didn't go back to Germany because I'm German. I went to the lab because I really wanted to work on those topics. Um, and I applied to a bunch of labs in Europe working on memory formation and plasticity um, in, in the UK and Switzerland and Germany. Um, and then this lab I chose because I really liked the people there. And I was really interested in, in just general synaptic plasticity and especially in plasticity of GABAergic circuits. Um, which ended up not being actually my PhD project. Um, so that's the reason why I ended up in the, And I thought Berlin is also a fun city to be in. So this wasn't like terrible either that this now happened to be in Berlin. <laughs> but that wasn't the main reason I went. Um, and it was really about the project and then also liking the group. And I think this is if I have advice for future PhD students, it's that choose the lab wisely and visit them before because your PhD will be frustrating most likely at some point in time. Um, and for me, it was really a lifesaver that I was in a lab where I liked the people, where I really appreciated my boss as a human being as well as a scientist. Um, and that there were a couple of labs where I went and the topic was great, but I just didn't feel like I clicked with the PI. And I think that's really important because you spend way too much time in that lab and also you have to deal with frustration that is very hard to deal with if you don't get on with the people I think um, yeah and so then there I worked on synaptic plasticity mechanisms um, I had a lot of projects that failed or just were boring and didn't end up anywhere and then while I was working on something totally different on after hyperpolarizations in the CHU region of the hippocampus um, I found this random thing where the neurons would hyperpolarize and then just stay hyperpolarized without ever coming back to their original resting potential. And so we were like, hmm, this is weird. I wasn't sure if it was an artifact or not. So I started looking into it and we found some um, older publications from the lab of um, um, Bacci who had showed that this hyperpolarization exists in, in, um, in cortical neurons and that this was apparently CB1, so cannabinoid type 1 receptor mediated, which is a very common and well-studied receptor in the brain um, that endocannabinoids and also THC binds to and that mediates the um, hallucinogenic um, effects of THC. So that's also why there's a huge interest in it from, I mean, from outside of science, the scientific realm as well. Um, 
yeah, so anyway, so we thought, hmm, this is a boring project, but because my PhD was already like two and a half years in, we thought like, well, whatever, we just write this up, this exists in another brain area, we just need to do a control with some CB1 receptor knockout mice, and then that's it. So it wasn't great, but I was like, fine, let, let's just finish what we started. And then we figured out that it's not CB1 receptor mediated, and then a whole quest of experiments that failed started. To cut the long story short, it's mediated by cannabinoid type 2 receptors, which was really interesting because they're not really supposed to be expressed in neurons. There had been one study that showed that maybe they're expressed in the brainstem, but then no one had really followed up on it. And there were some like some pharmacological studies, but no one had really shown that they're really expressed in neurons and they're supposed to be expressed in the immune system and in the, in the periphery. And so the, the problems around this receptor is that it's expressed at much lower levels than CB1. There were no antibodies. We tried to do single cell um, RNA-seq. We tried to do in situs. Everything failed. We couldn't visualize it. Someone we collaborated with the lab of Professor Andreas Zimmer and Bonn, they made a mouse. We couldn't see the receptor. So it was a total mess and really frustrating. And then in the end, we started another collaboration and we visualized the receptor on top of showing with um, neuron-specific knockout mice that it is really expressed in neurons. And so that ended up being my PhD project, which um, had nothing to do with synaptic transmission anymore because it was an autocrine um, plasticity mechanism. Um, but yeah, I'm in the end, I'm very happy with it because we got lucky and something useful came out of it. But I think my PhD in general is also a good example of the huge component of luck that is involved in science. And you can be as good as you want if the science doesn't play ball, then that's it, right? And I got lucky because this effect ended up being super interesting, but I could have also gotten unlucky and come out of a PhD with maybe one or two boring papers um, and, I don't know, nothing else. Um, that that was... Um, and if, a lot of other projects I still... I started my PhD and then we kind of quit halfway because they weren't really thought through very well. I think that's also something that happens way too often that you just have this, oh, let's just have a look attitude and then stuff just fizzles out. So I definitely had a lot of that in my PhD, which also, yeah, I, I was, I had really dark periods in my PhD where I was frustrated and I was like, this is not worth it. This is stupid. Um, but yeah, I mean, now I'm, I'm still here. I kind of got over them. Because <laughs> then I always think, what else would I do? And then I don't want to do anything else. And then I just get back in the lab. <laughs> uh, it must have been, a, so it's not super common. A lot of people have a very linear path to, okay, I went for this question and I got the results I, I published. And uh, whereas you were more guided to what your results were telling you. So I'm guessing that must have been scary at times for sure. And maybe comparing yourself to other students and the uh, overthinking a bit but it's really really cool that it worked out and you had a really nice story afterwards and so when you were doing your PhD you were always uh, in your head thinking okay I'm, I love research I'm going to continue this and uh, if so then how was the process to, of applying to your first postdoc? Uh, yeah, so I was very clear that I want to stay in science. Um, and I spent a lot of time thinking about where I want to do postdoc and what I want to do. But mostly because at the end of my PhD, I was at a point where, so again, I worked on hippocampal plasticity mechanisms, but always kind of, you know, in the, in the slice, ex vivo. And I was just sitting there like, okay, this is great, but like, I have no idea whether this is good for anything. So I really wanted to do a postdoc where I could bridge this, this 
this gap between doing something in vitro and but just knowing, okay, is there any point in why this is actually happening? Is this like, am I looking at an artifact because it's in the slides? So I knew that I want to go in vivo in addition to continuing to work in vitro. And so there were two, after long, long, long considerations, I ended up applying to labs where either people were working on olfaction, where you have a direct kind of sensory transformation that you can analyze, and looking at behavioral output. Um, and as, as you know, I ended up um, joining a lab where we're looking at behavioral output. And so it was kind of even though olfaction and instinctive behavioral output are very different, they're both... So what I really wanted to do is coming back to this initial interest um, in ethology and look at behaviors that an animal performs naturally and not look at, I don't know, a head fixed mouse pressing a lever and it's had to repeat this 10,000 times in order to learn it. And then you're not really sure what, like what kind of artificially rewiring of the brain you're looking at. Um, and so I met my, my postdoc supervisor, Thiago Branco, um, at the Cospring Harbour Labs Iron Channel course, where I was um, a teaching assistant. So I knew his work, I knew him, I knew that I liked him. Um, I really liked the work they were doing on escape behavior, and I thought this is a great way of studying what the brain does. It's a really robust behavior. We know which circuits are involved from a lot of older studies from the 80s and 90s, and especially electrical stimulation and pharmacology studies. Um, so yeah, I, I ended up deciding to join his lab um, and look at kind of behavioral output rather than sensory input. And I'm very happy with this decision. And uh, that's also what I'm continuing to work on now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it's really cool. I, I feel like there is a, a lot of people now are, are really focusing in understanding these uh, behaviors and uh, having a naturalistic approach to studying these behaviors as a gateway to understanding the brain. And so for sure, I think it's a really cool um, topic. And so do you want to tell us a bit about what did you uh, specifically study in the lab of uh, Tiago Branco? Yeah, so um, I joined the lab when he had his lab, I think, for two years. Um, so a very young lab. And uh, another postdoc um, and two students had just started to study escape behavior, mostly behaviorally. Um, and so I came in as a electrophysiologist and I did a lot of electrophysiology to look at the circuits underlying this behavior in the slides and look at how they're connected, what the synaptic properties are, um, doing anatomy and tracing. Um, yeah, and then ended up kind of my, my work kind of got gobbled up by this initial big project. As, as it goes, <laughs> uh, because all the data fit together perfectly, because we realized that the things I was finding in the slides matched this behavioral project so perfectly well and could explain how this decision to escape from threatening um, stimuli. So what we were doing in the lab is we were looking at um, auditory and visual stimuli that lead to um, instinctive escape. And so what you can do, again, this is the beauty of these behaviors, you can mimic the appearance of a predator either by a sudden sound or by projecting an overhead looming stimulus over the animal, which looks like an approaching aerial predator, making the animal run away. Um, and so what we found is that there's this monosynaptic feed-forward connection between the superocliculus, so the tectum in animals, which um, processes sensory information and gets direct input from the retina, that projects to a brainstem area or another brainstem area called the periacoductal gray, which sits around the aqueduct, hence the name. Um, and that these two 
that this connection between these two brain areas is what initiates escape behavior and also is important for the decision to escape from a threat or not. And so this was something that, because we knew from older studies and classical stimulation studies that these two brain areas are important for this transformation and that the PAG, the paracodactyl gray, is important for the initiation of the behavior, we didn't know what's actually happening within these brain areas to to control or to, to compute this behavior. And so this is what we did in our papers, just bridge the behavior and doing in vivo recordings of the neural activity during the behavior, do a lot of manipulation work in a cell type specific way, and then bridge this to showing in the slides what the structure of the circuit is that actually supports these um, computations. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, beautiful work. And was it for you a challenge to go from more of a electrophysiology to uh, studying behavior or, or not really? Um, not really, actually. I really liked it because behavior is a funny thing because you just spend hours and hours and hours of sitting in the dark. And I always thought, oh, then I read papers or I don't know, the news or whatever. But most of the time you just stare at this animal and it's like, just get out of the shelter and move. And you still have to be kind of vigilant and look because you have to adjust the experiment based on the animal's behavior. But I really enjoyed it. Um, and um, I really enjoyed doing surgeries. <laughs> It made me think after, oh, maybe I should have become a surgeon or something. Um, so what I think what was the hardest is going from, and this is still something talking about like struggles in, in science, one of my weak points, because I spent my whole life analyzing pretty unidimensional data of just a trace over time. I think the biggest change was to having to deal with very multidimensional data and behavior and in vivo recordings at the same time and not just looking at a trace over time where you analyze maybe three variables, like maximally five. Um, so I think that was the biggest challenge. The actual big physical work in the lab, sure, I had to learn it, of course, um, but I didn't find that particular, um, yeah, that wasn't a struggle. I really enjoyed it and I liked it. And um, I think, I, I mean, I learned it relatively quickly. I mean, it's not hard, right? Sticking a mouse in a box is not hard. <laughs> no, 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 for sure. I was thinking about the whole dynamics also of data because it, it's it's true that it gets so much more complex and uh, you have to come up with all of these uh, new skills that maybe you uh, don't have in the beginning, but it's very fascinating. Well, I'm extremely biased for this. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, I mean, it's still... I'm, I'm still pretty bad at coding in general, but then the good thing is also, I think one thing also as a PI, I mean, as a postdoc, not so much because you still have to do most of the things yourself, but you can collaborate, right? And I think now another, in addition to people pushing neuroethology as a field, which I think is absolutely necessary and great that it's more accepted now, Another thing is that people realize more and more that with the just the sheer size of projects nowadays, you have to collaborate anyway, or not everyone can do everything at the same time. Um, and whether you're more experimentally minded or more data analysis minded, I think it's pretty clear which which people prefer. And there's some people who do everything perfectly well. I I didn't. Um, I also always enjoyed doing experiments much more than the actual data analysis. So I think if you choose your collaborations wisely, I'm not saying you should go through your PhD or your postdoc not also learning other methods, but I think it's also okay to acknowledge that there are things that someone else can maybe do better than you. And so now, for example, in my lab, 
if we have, um, I don't know, computational questions, um, I'm not going to try and answer them myself, but I, I, I collaborate with computational neuroscientists, um, which makes, makes way more sense because I have much more expertise than I do. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great approach and it makes science go forward much more smoothly and faster. And um, so you were doing your postdoc for four years and you, I guess you became a group leader quite young, meaning early on in your career. How, when did you actually start deciding to start applying for jobs and how was this process? Um, so I think I officially, my, my postdoc was um, five years. So I started in 2015 and then I started my job here in um, January 2021. Um, yeah, so even in my postdoc, I didn't really think I would be a PI. Um, again, I think this comes with imposter syndrome, of which I have a great amount. <laughs> I I really didn't think I, I would be a PI. Um, and then at some point, people start asking, so are you on the job market? And then in the beginning, I didn't even know what it means to be on the job market. And I was like, what does that mean? And it's like, well, are you applying for jobs? Um, and so because I got very lucky in a way, because my my project ended up fusing with this project that had already been running in the lab. I had a paper out three and a half or three years after I had joined um, my postdoc lab, which is very, very short, right? Um, and so I actually have a, the second part of my postdoc um, that I worked on afterwards that's coming out as a preprint next week, so or in two weeks, so stay tuned, <laughs> where we look at inhibition in the PEG and what it does. Um, but so basically I was forced to start applying because so two things happened. My partner, he's also a neuroscientist. He had finished his PhD um, and he was looking for postdocs and he really wanted to get here, had already continued doing a postdoc. So we were in the same lab, actually. Um, he had continued doing a postdoc in the lab to kind of start equaling out our, um, our time differences that we had. Um, but then he was looking for postdocs and he was very um, particular in, in which labs he wanted to choose and where he wanted to go to that one option. And we spent the year discussing where we would go and whether I would do a second postdoc or start applying for jobs. Um, and I didn't really want to go back to Germany. As you can see, that worked out really well. Um, and so in the end, we were looking and I just started I started applying for jobs because it was clear that we would have to move on for this to, to work out and for both of us to, to be able to continue our career. Um, and he found a lab in Frankfurt that he really liked. So we took the gamble and I just started applying for, for a job here and I got a job. And so that's why we're here now. Um, but so this was all very much um, unplanned. And I, I guess this is what everyone says, right? You never feel ready to start your own lab. And this is definitely also the case for me. I feel like I stumbled into this blindsided and I just, I got the first job I applied to. So it's also, I have a pretty serious amount of uh, survivor bias now because I don't know what would have happened otherwise. I just applied to one job, I got it. I'm at an amazing institute that I really would, wanted to go to. Um, my lab has great funding, so there was no question of whether I would take this job or not. Um, but yeah, so basically personal circumstance made me, otherwise I would have stayed in Tiago's lab for much, much longer and finished the second project I was doing, um, which has now, because I, I left early and then the pandemic happened and I had a child in the meantime, is now kind of like three years late. Um, again, because of me just not being able to multitask to a degree that would have been necessary. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it is how, yeah, it is how it is. I think the two body problem in academia is something that comes up quite frequently. I'm curious to know why, why did you feel like you never thought you would, if you want to share, you never thought you would be a PI and how, what did you feel in your imposter syndrome? I think, I think one thing is that especially in electrophysiology where you have, so it's mostly male dominated and I grew up with the only professors I knew were male. I didn't know any female professors in our field. Um, they were really good at biophysics and maths. And because it's a very biophysics-y field, I also always felt like, oh, maybe I'm a fraud. I don't really understand how it works. Um, so I think that definitely played a big role that I, I just never saw any of my friends become or any of the postdocs in our lab. I just saw no one transition into PI jobs. They just all left science or stayed on as postdocs. So that was one thing. Um, yeah, and then the, I don't know, I just didn't, it, it's also something I wasn't sure when I started my postdoc. I loved doing experiments and I thought maybe I would actually much rather be a permanent scientist because I like doing experiments. I don't like the admin. I don't like interacting with humans quite so much as maybe I should. So I'm quite introverted. And so I, I just didn't see myself as a, as a PI, basically. And then, I mean, I could see how when you're a PI, you do very little actual science, right? There's very few people except for what I always found amazing, John O'Keefe at the SWC um, at UCL, he would still do surgeries and experiments, but the, the fewest PIs actually managed to do that. Um, but then after four years of working very, very, very hard in my postdoc, I also thought I'm not sure I can or want to do this for another 30 years. And I think this was the first time when I thought maybe becoming a PI is not actually such a bad idea <laughs> because I don't think I have the strength to continue experimenting like this for another 30 years. And also because I like coming up with projects and someone said this and I, I don't, I don't remember where I read this, but this, this idea that turning into a science facilitator now I, I allow way more people to do science than if I'm just doing my own science. And it's really nice. I now have a group who, who all work on a topic that we all think is exciting. And I'm at the moment at least allowing something like five to six people to, to work on something that we all think is great. And I, I like this way of thinking of what you do when you become a PI is that you actually, yeah, you, you are making science more available than if you're just doing your own thing. And I'm also happy. I'm, yeah, I'm, the transition was hard and I still half of the time I feel like I'm my own postdoc. And I, I really struggled with the responsibility in the beginning and knowing that I'm responsible for my students doing well. And if I screw up, then I screw them up. And I really struggled with dealing with this type of responsibility. But yeah, I think uh, I've, I'm, I'm kind of slowly easing into this new role. But yeah, so, sorry, that was a very long um, answer to when did I think about becoming a PI. I think it mostly got started because other people started saying like, hey, you should apply because you've just had your paper, you should go. Yeah. No, but I, I was I was thinking it's it's really beautiful idea, this science facilitator thing that uh, we can, you can build your own community and uh, nurture that. And then you can even do more things than uh, if it was just you working like uh, crazy. And so now, if you, think, if you think back at these uh, two dynamics, does the fact that you have to take care of all of these administrative things and you have all of these responsibilities, 
but does it still outweigh all of the costs that it comes with the position or how, how do you feel now as a perspective of being a, a PI? Um, I think it outweighs all the negatives. I mean, I'm not going to lie, especially in German, the admin is horrendous. And every second day, I just want to scream because of something really stupid. And I have a great colleague in the neighboring office who started her lab um, just after me, Dr. Alison Barker. And so I can just go in her office and feel like, ah, and then so that's how I deal with all the admin. Um, no, I think it's worth it. And I, I feel very, I mean, in general, I've always felt very, very privileged that I'm allowed to do science and I get paid for doing science and doing what I like. And I know there's a lot of debate about pay and whether it's too low or not. And so I've never really thought about this too much because I always had enough money to finance myself. But then I also I didn't have a child or only late in my postdoc. And I always felt like I had enough money and I didn't really care about it. And I know that's a privileged thing not to have to worry about it, right? But, um, and I also, I now, I really like it. just, it's such a privilege to say like, hey, I think that's a cool idea. Do you want to work on this? And then someone says, yeah, awesome. I, it's, I, I really enjoy it. And I still sometimes think that it's crazy that I, that I got the money to, to, to try this out and do it. And I take it very seriously and I get very stressed because I feel like I have a lot of responsibility now that I got this opportunity and I don't want to let it go to waste. Uh, so it definitely comes with a lot of stress. Um, but overall, yeah, I think it's totally worth it. Um, yeah. And like in every respect. And I mean, it's also the problems I have. If, if I had any other job, right, I would have so many more problems and I would have like strict work hours probably, or I would, I don't know, work a night shift or I would actually have to sign out every time I, I mail or I don't know I think science is so privileged because it's so flexible and it allows you to adapt it to your own lifestyle that this is for at the moment for example I think is really helping me with a small child um, I would struggle much more in another full-time job I think yeah that's a that's a good perspective and so what in fact what does your lab study now so what are the running topics <laughs> that you have and the techniques because now you have like a really big skill set that you can explore and uh, and a lot of open questions I assume yeah so in general we're interested in in instinctive behaviors and the neural circuits that underlie instinctive behaviors and we focus on on how these neural circuits allow flexibility and in instinctive behaviors and so When people think of instinctive behaviors, they often refer to them as innate, which stems from the fact that they are innate as in they are there from birth. But then, of course, all of them have, have some level of flexibility and modulation based on, for example, prior experience, um, learning experiences from changes in internal and motivational states. So they're really not hardwired in a sense that they cannot change based on current circumstance. And so this is something we're really interested in. And the other thing we're interested in is um, looking at how you can resolve motivational conflict on a fast basis and the neural circuits underlying this. So imagine you're an animal and you're, let's imagine because we work on mice, um, the boring house mouse, um, which is still an incredible model because they they may be not so great to study some other artificial complex tasks, but they're actually incredibly good at solving complex tasks that they would also find in the wild, right? So Marcus Meister had this really cool paper where they showed that mice, if you give them a really complicated maze to get the food, they basically learn it immediately. Whereas a complicated task with something they would never do, they take like a million times to learn it. 
Um, anyway, so if you think of a mouse um, that's hunting a cricket because it's hungry, and then there's a sudden motivational conflict because there's a predator approaching. It has to make a split-second decision of whether it continues hunting or whether it runs away and uh, re and tries to reach um, safety. And so we try and study the resolve of these motivational conflicts, again, in the periacroducal gray, which has been shown to be important for behavioral selection and also has the, the necessary circuit architecture to support us. Um, and so... We study this on a behavioral basis where we have um, we do behavioral recordings while we have chronically implanted animals um, with silicon probes. So we record the neural activity in the brain areas we're interested in during the different instinctive behaviors that we're testing. In this case, let's say hunting and escape. And then we um, introduce this motivational conflict and then also record the activity um, during the behavioral selection of switching behavior from one behavior to another. Um, so that's one big part of the lab. Then we're interested in the in the locomotor output of um, instinctive behaviors, which has not really been studied in detail at all. So we don't really know what happens after the initiation of an instinctive behavior. So we're looking at kind of downstream brainstem circuits and analyzing how how this directed behavior is um, implemented on a locomotor level. And then thirdly, we're looking at um, plasticity mechanisms in the brainstem coming more from like a bottom-up angle where people generally assume that everything that's flexible is top-down and is cortical. And we're kind of trying to go against this cortic-centric view of that everything that is important happens in the cortex which I think is utter BS because you can, you can, I don't know, we have a lot of experiment where we get rid of the cortex and nothing really happens. Um, and so I firmly believe that the brainstem is very important also for implementing flexibility and it expresses the same amount of neuromodulatory receptors than the cortex would or the hippocampus or whatever. And so we're studying natural, um, naturally occurring changes in neuromodulation through the Easter cycle at the moment and looking at how this affects um, brainstem circuits and how these changes based on estrus then affect behavioral output. Wow, beautiful, beautiful lines of research. I, I didn't know about, uh, especially about this last one. It's very, very cool. Um, okay, and one of the things that I, I like asking, well, I think you have plenty going on and uh, I'm sure uh, a lot of open questions within these topics, but is there something else that you feel like you have not explored scientifically that you would like to go explore in terms of topics? In terms of topics? Uh, in terms of neuroscience, for I mean, there's a lot of stuff I would be really interested in. In terms of neuroscience, I think what I do at the moment, I is my favorite topic topic of exploration. If I would do something else, I would I would totally be a zoologist and go explore animals in the wild and tag them and look at the um, collective behavior structures. So research, if I would do a PhD and a postdoc now, I would probably apply to a group like, I don't know, Ian Cousin, for example, um, or Margaret Crawford to work on collective decision-making in the wild, which I think is super cool. I don't think that will happen in my lifetime, but um, that's something else. That these, these are mostly papers that I would read despite them being outside of my field where I'm, whenever they publish, I immediately go read the paper because I think it's so cool. 
Yeah, it's very, very cool. Okay, I think, well, we've talked a bit about everything and I think we have a, a very good overview about your uh, career. And one of the things that I'm curious, and I guess it's we can end on a more light note. So what do you like to do in your pastime? Do you still like going maybe for the hobbies that you had before starting your bachelor's in biology or not really or anything that you want to share? Um. So I think this is a bit twofold. Before, I think I have to split this into before I had a child and after I had a child. Because <laughs> now I've been chronically chronically sleep deprived for about four years. Uh, so I, do, I try to sleep in my free time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the maximum I do is like read a book and go for a walk. Um, no, I don't know. I really enjoy, so especially until in, during my postdoc, I really enjoy um, climbing or bouldering rather. Um, and taking photos and reading and going for walks so like pretty boring not terribly exciting things um, and um, now that I have a lab I think if I just had a lab I would still do all of these things now that I have a child in the lab I my free time is pretty much taken up and um, I now hang out on playgrounds which I hate or go cycling with my son <laughs> or um, yeah I don't know make something with my son um occasionally read a book if i find the time to read a book that's like that's pretty pretty good so hopefully in some years i'll, I'll start doing some some hobbies again <laughs> yeah no it's part of life part of life okay well i think we can finish up here thank you so much vanessa thank it was you so much really, it was really, really fun cool learning yeah it was very fun talking and getting to know you more and uh yeah Thank you very much. This was fun.